especially, I mean, especially everyone, but <laughs> most especially those adult people who were trying to take this on. Because this is not always the easiest thing to do. You know, those of us in pediatric, adolescent medicine, you know, we do it out of choice. my residency training and began in 1989 working at the Adolescent AIDS Program. I also have been working for the past 14 years in South Africa um, and seeing so many similarities with the adolescence and transition programs, learning a lot to bring back. I mean, their scale up of public health initiatives are fantastic. So it's been a wonderful exchange. Um, and I also want to say many people in this room will know the stuff I'm talking about. So one of the things, if you are really experienced in this field, is to sort of see how someone else puts the package together and are there a couple of things you can bring back home to share with your colleagues. Um, and for those of us who are more new to the field, um, what I'm trying to do is really give an overview of what some of the issues are and best practices. Um, at the very last slide um, is an acknowledgement to HIVcareforyouth.org. It's a website that was developed um, in collaboration with HRSA and AETC under Lynn Wegman's leadership at the time. And I have to say it's a classic. It really stands the test of time. Uh, the one correction I didn't make on my slides was Anna Garcia and Larry Friedman were the authors of this chapter. But it's a, that whole thing, we, one of the chapters was on transition, medical care, um, prevention, and mental health care uh, were the other topics. So I'm going to jump in. It's a little, uh, they told me there were about 75 people. I'm glad it's not as full as that. But um, <clears throat> I will see if we can get to the workshop part of this. What I wanted to do with the workshop in the last 15 or 20 minutes was have you think of cases or situations that have been challenging for you and then have all of us help answer. Um, and I love the diversity in this room. We're all parts of the country. The South, where the epidemic is 50% of new cases, is relatively well represented here. So I think we can all learn and share from each other, and uh, that's always a thrill. And as they introduce this meeting upstairs in the plenary, I think the chance to collaborate, to realize that as much as you may feel lost in the work you're doing, everyone's kind of at the same place. There's no magic answer. If it's something we all, you feel lost in, it's likely that's because we haven't fully solved that issue. Uh, right now, we're not feeling lost in giving PrEP or in giving HIV meds because it's worked out. So some of this adolescent stuff is not rocket science, but it's harder than that because it involves people who um, we have to work with, engage, support over a long period of time. 
So, um, HIV-positive adolescents transitioning to adult care, um, slightly different than the title in your book, but um, I've been at this so long that I got to be a professor. This has been my only work. Um, I remember when I started this work, the head of my department said, why go into AIDS? That's not a specialty. You know, what are you going to do with that? And I think, you know, early on, those of us working in a stigmatized field felt it. But now I think we've all realized that we can do smart work, we can do, um, you know, academic research, we can do service, and this has been an amazing career to be able to work in such a comprehensive way. Um, just to remind us that AIDS is a global issue, it's not just we're focusing on the United States, but um, uh, UNICEF found AIDS is the number one killer of adolescents, oops, number one killer of adolescents between the ages of 10 to 19. I like to go up to 24, and it's the number one killer in Africa and number two worldwide. And we're currently in the midst of a big boom in adolescence. This is the largest generation of young people in history. And you can see that AIDS really exists throughout the world, um, but concentrated in its most heavy ways in Southern Africa oh, and, and uh, Eastern Africa. India is another place where there are a lot of new HIV cases. Um, in the U.S., there are 47,000 new cases a year, and just in 2013, of those, a little more than a third <coughs> took place in adolescents and young adults 13 to 29. The other number you heard earlier was 26% up to age 24, and that's just new infections. In the U.S., about 1.2 million people are living with HIV, and the latest data shows that... that um, 13% of adults are still unaware of their infection, but the most recent studies of youth, 60%. So four times that rate. So young people are early in their infection and much, much less likely to know of their infection. So testing becomes an important issue, not so much in my transition talk, but in thinking about HIV. Um, and there are growing numbers of perinatally infected youth aging into adolescence. This is a very specific and unique cohort. If we think back to 94, when AZT was first introduced to prevent mother-to-child transmission, going up to about 96, 97, when the numbers started really plummeting, so three, uh, 97, three years, plus the 16 we're in now, this is... Uh, the sort of last group of these young people, except for a trickle, are like 19 and 20 now. So pray to God, and I'm not a praying person, that this epidemic won't recur because, you know, if we drop the funding, if we drop the programs, if we ignore it, it will be guaranteed to come back. But hopefully we will still do it. And this represents about 7,000 young people. My earliest patients from the late 80s um, are now in their 40s. So, you know, the one nice thing about adolescence is it keeps moving. <laughs> and few people are stuck in it forever. Um, so I'm going to show you two CDC slides because what I want us to do is really understand who these kids are. So this is the first one 
about race, ethnicity. This is 13 to 19 where it's starkest. On the right is the U.S. population, almost 30 million young people, 13 to 19. 15% um, of them, this pink slice, are African American. This is the percent that are HIV positives, 67, four times. And quite a number of years ago, in fact, about 15 or 20 years ago, the Congressional Black Caucus said HIV is a healthcare emergency in the African-American community, yet these disparities persist. And, you know, all of us, our heart aches, we want to cry, you know, we need to address this. I don't always feel like I'm the best spokesperson for this, yet it is so powerful. Um, worse in teenagers than, uh, the disparity is worse than in adults, where it's almost a half. So this is pretty powerful. Um, Latino um, kids, 21% of the population right now, about 17% of the positives. And white kids represent just over half the population, 13% of the young people with HIV. So this is a huge disparity, and it's different than adults. It's like everything in adults, but worse. And you'll need to recognize that in, in the programs and making sure your programs can be responsive to these young people. The other um, interesting and important disparity to recognize, this is 13 to 24 year olds, and it compares, not compares, but it shows males and females. And for males, the largest um, percentage of risk is male to male sexual contact, followed by perinatal 13%. For females, the largest is heterosexual contact, followed by 34% perinatal infection. And perinatal is really 50-50, male-female. It's just that there is such a huge and overwhelming preponderance of young men who have sex with men, a tiny slice of the population. And just to digress for a second, this year is the first year that the CDC in what they call their risk behavior survey, a survey that takes place among school-age kids every two years. This is the first year that the national survey asked about sexual orientation. It was so politically charged that they couldn't even do the science and the research on comparing risk to sexual orientation. Many cities and states could ask that question, but it wasn't national. So let's not forget that this, that Everything that we see in HIV is, is contextualized by the social problems. So how, you know, let's not be surprised that three-quarters of the young men are gay, whether or not they self-label as that, because, you know, we're unwilling to even ask a question on a survey. So this is, you know, powerful stuff and important for us to keep acknowledging. So if you're going to be in a transition program and dealing with behaviorally infected kids, these are the young men that you're going to be dealing with. And for the girls, it's heterosexual contact. Now, who are the guys that these girls are having sex with? Believe it or not, we don't fully know that. Um, since every study I've seen shows that about half of the gay guys have sex with women at some point in, your li in their lives, I'm not surprised that it's that some of this is their peers. It's not just their older sugar daddies. And I learned a new word that's called the givers. 
the new word for the sugar daddies is givers because they give you things. So, you know, we, we don't know. It's, it's kind of shocking what we don't know, you know, this, this far into the epidemic. Um, so on the youth continuum of care, you heard this, you saw it earlier in the plenary. Um, this is, you know, estimated uh, 80,000 young people who were infected, only 60% know their, or 60% do not know their status, so only 40% do. And then you're going down, diagnosed, linked, retained, suppressed. We are down to, of the number of individuals who are HIV, positive who are young people, 94% um, of them. At, in this study um, done by Ken Mayer et al, were virally suppressed. So when you're accepting patients for transition, you're gonna be getting a group of young people who are not as successful yet in their clinical um, objectives. So what are some of the elements of youth-friendly care? Um, First, before it don't look at this for a second. I'm actually going to go back. <laughs> How many of you in the audience honestly like and feel comfortable taking care of adolescents? Okay. So this is the people who at 5 o'clock <laughs> on day one of the conference came to this session, and it was the highest I've ever gotten in an audience survey. Almost all of you like and, and want to take care of adolescents. I, I would hope so. Um, but in most cases, it's not true. So, you know, that to me is the number one criteria of doing this work, liking and wanting to take care of these kids. So after that, providers who are knowledgeable about youth issues, who are non-judgmental, and that can mean a lot of things, um, uh, confident who your clinic has to address confidentiality and consent issues, who you tell what, who's allowed to consent for what, um, the importance of seeing adolescents separately from their parents, because that's the way to build trust, to build a bond. Even if the mother says, I know everything, I love him, why are you kicking me out of the room? You have to be able to say, because they need the opportunity to just be on their own and grow up and take charge of this. Um, you need a multi, oh, and this next one could be like the, the biggest clinical pearl, which is cohorting youth to a single day. And that's like pick Tuesday to be youth day so the kids can see, and it could be any day, don't take me literally. Um, the young people can see each other. They don't feel like they're one in a sea of either pediatric patients or adult patients. They're other young people coming the same day. Very few places have the opportunity of a youth clinic. It just, you know, I do, but that's not the norm. So <coughs> cohorting really helps that. Um, having a multidisciplinary team to address all these kind of issues like poverty, education, housing, transportation to clinic. And then finally, you know, our goal is not just to manage disease, but to try and help empower youth to live with HIV and pursue life goals. Now, when we started this work, no one thought perinatally infected kids or behaviorally infected kids would survive. So, you know, they were spoiled. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to go to school. They didn't have to hear no even, you know, learn chores. All of those things because we thought those kids weren't going to survive. So now you have a group of kids who grew up maybe not in the smartest way who are having to face, you know, being adults for a very long time. 
So empowerment, what are your goals? You know, helping kids understand they can have them and need to have them. Um, and then, of course, addressing coping. How are they handling it? Their mental health issues, HIV care, and prevention. And I'm going to go through some of these, but um, are there any questions or issues anyone here has about any of these topics? Yeah. So for your cohort of your kids in the way. Yes. Okay, so it's very variable, and I, it doesn't mean they can't come in sick on other days, but when we started our clinic, we had mostly boys, a few girls, so once a month we had a GYN day, because that would encourage girls to come, and then there would be like a critical mass, so, you know, more of them would come. This could work with any size. I mean, if you have a huge number and providers, you could have two days. I mean, it's, this is not literal. It's just saying try and make their appointments on the same day. Does that answer it? Or <laughs> you have too many or too few? What about maybe This will work perfectly with that, you know. Yeah, well, I'm in a completely different situation because I have an adolescent clinic, 13 to 24. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, it's just a suggestion as a way because one of the things is the young people are a little afraid of adults and the adults that they see. Yes. Excuse me, Mr. Dill. If uh, you take a, if you have questions. That you use the microphone. And it's not because your voice doesn't project, it's because they're recording it. Exactly. So they like so to have everyone on the microphones. Okay. So let's remember that transition is a process. It's not a one-time event. Transition is not Wednesday, you go to the adult clinic. Thank you. Goodbye. Um, okay. Policies. You have to know what's the age that you're going to start transitioning. You said 15. Okay, I haven't heard that, but it's actually true, like throughout Africa, pediatric clinics can go to 10 or 12 at the most, and then they become an adult. And if I think I have a hard time transitioning my 24-year-olds, uh, this is a whole different thing. And so, yeah, so I find that the definition of adolescence is when they say no to the provider or to their mother. Um, that's <laughs> adolescence, and adults is when you're just tired of them. <laughs> so it's not so nice, but, you know, it's, it, this happens. So really getting clear what your policies are. If you're doing the much younger kids like you're doing in Oklahoma, um, it's really important to attend to the younger age, that they really are not adults. A 24-year-old you could see becoming an adult, but... The younger ones, it's very different. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh. Are you a pediatrician? Peds ID? Uh, no, general peds. Okay. So I, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules. Um, 
I used to think it was a little funny, you know, going up to 26. Now I, I don't see the problem with it. And, you know, I know a Columbia alcohol. So basically we change our name. We go from adolescent clinic to adolescent and young adult. You know, so I don't know legally at your institution what you're allowed to do. I mean, pediatric licenses are not licensed to do geriatrics, you know, so, yes. I find the problem is that, thank you. I find the problem is that we can change the age in the adolescent HIV program, yeah. but the hospital is yes. different. So that we see still 24. Emergency room doesn't see kids till 21, yeah. and so that's a challenge. Committed to other services yeah. they need. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the logistical issues that you're going to find, and that's why we stress that it's a individual policy for the kids, but it's also for our programs. So. We accepted a long time ago that when we increased our age to 24, that the emergency room would not see them past 21. So we accept that we have to work with the adult ID, follow their inpatient procedures, and go see them. Go see our kids when they're hospitalized. So I think it's a combination of what resources you have, what your desire is. I mean, for us, the increase in age from 21 to 24 took place early on. The young people insisted on it. And at that point, we were transitioning kids with less than a year to live. And it just seemed cruel. I mean, adults who are, you know, stronger don't have to do this transition. Peds and adolescents is the only group that does. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything inherent to this age cutoff except our systems and our training as pediatricians. And here I think the family practice people have the, you know, the advantage because they see people throughout the lifespan. Okay, so we need to recognize that it is a disruption. No matter what you say, it is a disruption to build trust with new providers and learn new systems of care. Um, you know, pediatricians, adolescent programs, we can take half hour to an hour with our patients. Not always, and the nurses don't always like it, but, you know, we can do that. Adults, it's like, here's your 15 minutes. If you come late, you miss your appointment. We, you know, expand to meet the need. The adult people don't seem to, although they've had to learn some of this stuff. Um, so different systems of care. This next one, I think, is kind of amazing. Different cultural models of adulthood. What is an adult expected to do? What is a teenager expected to do in each different ethnic, racial group, part of the country? Um, we're finding this in the Bronx, and it's very interesting. After many years of, uh, you know, a team that I used to joke, well, we have all kinds of Jews, you know, as the clinicians, we have finally managed to get and build a really nice, diverse team of you know, black and Hispanic nurses, doctors, um, social workers. Um, we have really different ideas about what the adolescents should be and get. Um, you know, the black and Hispanic staff members are like, come on, stand up, represent. You're not going to be coddled forever. You know, and the expectation on them is, you know, is high and strong. 
whereas many of the white folks who went into this are much more paternalistic, we'll help you no matter what happens, we'll never leave you, and it kind of doesn't always stretch the kids or allow them to become mature and take care of themselves. So, and that's in a lot of ways the ethos of adolescent medicine is this endless, you know, accommodation. So I think we all need to recognize that not only does our staff, but also the families and the young people themselves have to exist in a different world than necessarily we are from. There are different rituals of growing older. So I think this was a great um, piece of doing this website with HRSA was it was about cultural competence. And so, and then I started really seeing it in the Bronx. And I know, you know, many people knew this for a long time, but I, you know, I began to see it more and we're having some interesting discussions on our team. And then transition is also about learning self-care, life skills, and goals. And I can't emphasize this enough. There is such a low ceiling that people with HIV have for themselves as to what they can do. They don't believe they can do anything, have any skill. One of my patients, early patients, got his doctorate and is running a, a psychosocial research program at a high-level university. Um, another one became a PA. You know, these kids can are and can really succeed and exceed, um, but a lot of them don't think that. So that's an important, a nice piece of this. Um, so what are some of the uh, challenges? Um, well, one is they're attached to the medical team, and we talk about the trauma of leaving, and I think Fran spoke to that so movingly before. <laughs> It's not easy to say goodbye to people who've cared with you since you were a baby, knew your family, um, the behaviorally infected kids. We were the ones who told them they were positive. So there's a lot of attachment, and that's a lot of the thinking about the successful patients or those that have good, productive relationships with their providers. So now we're tearing that asunder. Um, and they don't want to keep telling their medical history you know, to a new set of providers and social workers and everything. I mean, we always have turnover in staff, but this is very dramatic. Um, stigma associated with a chronic disorder that's stigmatized or being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. And this one isn't always such a nice truth, but the teenagers go to an adult clinic and they see adults who are much older, who often, at least less so now, but often look sick, you know, a much higher prevalence of drug users, especially injection drug users, and they don't identify with that. I mean, I don't know about other people's clinics, but very few injection drug use, very few young people get HIV through injection drug use. So they're just a little uncomfortable when they walk in those waiting rooms. Now, that's not a ideology you want to support and say, oh, that's cool, you're different than them. But it needs to be recognized that when you think you're being so smart doing this tour, you know, maybe you're also scaring the kids. So I always find that, you know, processing, saying what your fears are helps with most things. Yes? So I was just going to say that on the issue of I take care of women, I provide um, reproductive health services um, to adults and adolescents. And um, one of the things the adolescents tell me, the young women, is that they feel uncomfortable with some of the men in the waiting room who are adults and hit on them. Yes. 
And I don't even know where to address. Yeah. I should tell you more about that. <laughs> so we've offered, you know, having them wait in other places and yeah. such. So that's it's another comfort level. I, I'm a, and it may even be subtle. It may, may not be like they're being, but to the adolescent, it, it's a little like, scary. Yeah, and yeah. for the guys, it's like, oh, they're seeing, you know, nice, girls, you know, right. cute girls right. walking in. You know, not the same old, same old faces. You know, there's, um, you know, just a lot going on with that. And I think, um, you know, maybe the, like, the staff will get annoyed that they come in dressed oddly. Or the staff will get annoyed that they're listening to music and either out loud or have earphones. The staff will get annoyed that they don't come on time, that they don't listen, that they're not respectful. They haven't been trained you know, and they're not going to be. And, you know, the adult, people get passive after being in an environment for a long time. So I think that, you know, maybe some of it is education for all the patients. Like, we're getting in new patients. Let's remember to all treat each other with respect. Um, yeah. So instead of s totally stopping, I'm going to go to the end so we at least have time to cover it all. Oops. Uh, so... Um, Fewer psychosocial support services in adult care. I mean, we kind of have very individualized care models in peds and adolescent medicine um, that there's just not enough resources, people in the adult programs for the, as they're used to. And then, a, you know, all kinds of barriers, but one to watch out for is insurance gaps during a transition. Think of this handoff as a really vulnerable time where everything that could go wrong will. And so the more you plan, the more you anticipate, the better off you're <coughs> going to be. And a lot we think about the patient's experience, but we have to figure out what we do as health systems and clinics and all those kind of things. So perinatally infected youth are a unique group um, with huge challenges. Um, unlike many other diseases, this is a family unit disease. And either, you know, kids who are perinatally infected, by definition, got it from their mother. So it may have been just their mother or their mother and the father or generations infected. Um, the mother may be sick. She may not have survived. Often these kids are raised by grandparents who weren't expecting to have to do this level of work. Um, so, you know, you really have to understand who the support are, what they're trying to do. Um, and as we'll talk about later, um, you know, when the kids uh, don't do what they're supposed to do and reach the brink of death because they can't take their medicines anymore, uh, the parents uh, or the caregivers feel like failures. There's a lot of guilt, a lot of anger, and, you know, hopefully some of this has been worked out, but, you know, it recurs. Trauma keeps coming back, and um, so it's a very important thing to factor in. That's not as true for adults. Uh, disclosure is one of the biggest hot-button issues. Um, for a long, long time, maybe the first 10, 15, even 20 years of the epidemic, there was a very strong belief among some providers and families that the kids should not be told that they were HIV positive. And despite lots of evidence that family secrets and not telling a young person their disease and diagnosis was extremely harmful. That persisted because families were afraid of stigma. They were afraid of, you know, putting down the mother, you know, by telling the young person what had happened to her and what led her to get HIV if it was drug addiction. Um, so 
Disclosure is such a hot-button issue, and the kids who found out late, like 12 and older, are some of the most troubled kids that any of us will see. And so understanding that history and why they ended up this way is... Um, is really important. Um, it's, you know, we all know disclosure is important, but for these young people, it, you know, defines half the reality that they face. Um, lack of belief in future and life goals because it really wasn't available. Uh, medication issues. More than almost any population, these young people have viral resistance. And that's an interaction of our own treatment, it was less than optimal. We started with, you know, single meds, AZT, then DDI. Then we combined a few. Then we got to maybe three. Um, I, adherence was like a known topic in adolescent medicine, you know, when the protease inhibitors were first approved and you had to take them regularly. And if you didn't, you know, everything would explode. Um, we knew that wasn't going to work for teenagers. They couldn't do it, you know. And even as a doctor mother, I couldn't give my son a four times a day penicillin dose. You know, it's just like crazy. If uh, Twice a day, maybe. But, you know, and then, so it's just like, these are hard things we were asking them to do. Now, thank God, we're one pill a day, you know. But, um Meds were often a battleground for young people, perinatally infected. And literally, I don't know how many of you either went through this or know this, but, um, you know, in pediatric medicine, if you have to do something medically for the, pers for the kid, you hold them down. There are special papooses to put, you know, to hold someone down to either draw blood or, you know, get them to take something. We would sometimes, and I, I'm not saying it was all wrong, but we would put feeding tubes for young people so they could get their medicines. There weren't pediatric formulations. So, you know, liquid ritonavir tasted like diesel fuel. You know, so this was a battleground, a full-fledged battleground. And, um, you know, that's, again, a traumatic history that many of these kids came through. So when the time they get to transition to you as an adult provider, I just want to scare you completely. That, you know, that there's some, you know, real challenges in these kids' lives. Um, and in fact, when you become a teenager, part of what not everyone loves about teenagers is they say no, and they're independent, and they're making decisions for themselves. And that is appropriate developmentally, yet with HIV and many other chronic illnesses, it means they don't do what's the right health thing to do or medical thing to do and they can fall off the cliff. So pretty much the young people who were sick and dying and don't have to, you know, a big group of that are the perinatally infected who just can't deal with it anymore. They're tired. It's not. So, you know, we get some success in engaging them and giving them a new lease on life. Maybe the adult people who won't coddle them and so insist on you know, proving the case mentally, but just say, here it is, here's your pill. Maybe that's going to work better. You know, so don't just think of all of that, because I'm clearly reliving my traumas of this. You know, it just, this is, this was intense stuff. Um, and then also these kids can be quite sick. I mean, HIV itself affects the brain, 
There's a, a fair amount of developmental disabilities in these kids. It affects the heart. It affects the kidneys. It affects the bones. So there's a lot of sickness in this group of kids. So when some people love doing this because it's like the most challenging medicine in HIV they will ever see. Does anyone here like turned on by the challenge? <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, Susan. <laughs> take on uh, who's had to take on um, newly diagnosed young people from 17 year old we had to kind of literally take them because we didn't have a pediatric unit that take took care of uh, these kids um, but it's pretty much these challenges mirror what we see in adult medicine as well uh, because remember, adults revert to second childishness when they have HIV. They're big babies. You will have to do all this. You know, okay, disclosure so, is huge. Yes. So, so here we understand the, the roots of it. So okay, so it's not do. just us. It's not just you. Okay, I'm going to let you speak, and then after this, I'm going to go on. Go ahead. I, I just have to, I have to beg to differ. Caring for both crews and the perinatally acquired ones, we've got a good handful of them. And they are so sick. The issues around developmental disabilities, I think about developmental arrest, maybe that happened when they found out because nobody told them or what. But they, it, adherence for them, oh my God, they'll, they'll get full thrush from their ears to their toes, herpetic lesions on their vulvar area, and they say, oh yeah, baby, now, no. It doesn't last, and I see that quite differently than the adults. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we all have experiences, but I, and many, whenever I give an adolescent talk and there's adult people, they say, oh, we see that, we see that, you know, that's all. Of course, you know, they're just like, you know. However, I think this is very common in many teenagers. Of course, we have some, you know, amazing patients who get it, who are sailing through, you know, who are the top cheerleaders. I mean, we have stories and stories of successes, but, you know, we're going to talk about challenges. Uh, both the Department of Health and Human Services, New York State, and I'm sure other people have come up with guidelines uh, for transition, and they're very similar provider communication. That's the transition team, life skills development, multidisciplinary case conferences, New York reminds us we can have an individualized approach, identifying capable adult providers, not everyone. We're going to screen you too. Um, communication again, flexible transition plan, and multidisciplinary. So there's a lot of overlap. And I'm going to give a few more of these. So what are some of the things that accepting the adult care site has to do? Recognize that they're different care models. The pediatric adolescent model is supportive and the uh, adult care model in general is independent, although we're recognizing more and more that we need navigators, that we need people involved in this. Um, and we have to shift the responsibilities for care from the parent and provider to the patient. Um, and again, not always easy. The parent may not want to back off. The child may have been happy being taken care of, but most of them like becoming their own agent. Um, promoting growth, self-expression, personal decision-making, which has often been denied. 
um, the adult clinic has to have. And multidisciplinary services can be as simple as a medical and a mental health provider slash case manager. But for the most part, young people can't navigate this on their own. And when they're making this transition, they need extra help. And we like to do a phase transition with bringing someone over from the adult side to our clinic or walking our people over to the adult clinic. Um, I think that's probably more effective is to take our children, our adolescents over to the adult clinic so they see what it is. Um, for helping the patients prepare, um, we start about a year before the transition has to take place. A lot of people will say, oh, transition starts the second they come into care. I find that so oppressive. Like the minute, hello, we're here to help. By the way, in three years, five years, you're going to have to leave. You know, it's like, an, you know, it's just, it's a style thing, but I hate that expression, you know, transition starts the second you meet them. And uh, about one year before is a good amount of time. Um, but young people have to know their health, their history, their daily and long-term care needs. And this you literally have to go over with them. You can prepare it, they can add to it. It's a nice document to create together, but then you're up against, oh, do I have to tell my story again? You know, in some ways you do, but in some ways, you know, some of this can be codified. Um, having them try and anticipate what some of the barriers to care might be. Um, you know, we act like it's a big deal to give people reminder calls, but you know what? That's how most medical practices work. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in an adult practice that does that, that's, you know, great. So some of these things are getting more normalized that will help people, and you want to help them meet the new providers. The families, if the, these are perinatally infected kids, or we find that there's parents, and it's usually mothers, of the gay kids, the gay young men, will want to be involved and want to help and want to tell you, you know, what's, what's really going on. Um, so, you know, and you might have to help them cope with the fact that their kid is gay or their kid is transgender and they need to be able to talk that out and understand it and whether or not your clinic can provide all that or there's community resources is important. Um, Allowing time, I mean, a year is a nice amount of time for a transition like that, but you have to give it time. Um, anticipate acting out behaviors, especially around keeping appointments. And there's this whole feeling that somehow someone who isn't taking their medicines is punishing you, the provider, or you, the clinic. And it's very, you know, or they don't trust what you say, but if their friend told them or the internet told them, truth. You know, so some of this stuff is just funny, and I don't think it's just adolescence, but, you know, that is the world that we have to negotiate, um, focusing on strengths, growth, the meaning of the relationships. And the last one here, monitor. Um, you know, we all thought that we were doing great. You know, we knew the adult providers. You know, we had one of our nurse practitioners move up to the adult world. She was going to handle all our patients until we looked at the data and we weren't doing so great. Like half of the patients, you know, the transition stuck. So you have to monitor. I have found that anything you do once, you think you're doing all the time. Like, and it's true like with testing. Oh yeah, we test everyone. You know, when you show people the data, mm, not so true. So this is really important because half your patients 
are going to make it and go to the first appointment, the second appointment, get their health back together, and they're the people who are generally doing well with you, but the other half are not. And, you know, the if they're not bonded to the adult clinic, they're not going to feel responsible for getting them back. We are responsible until the handoff occurs and is successful. And, um, you know, I don't know what you feel and what resources you have, but I think the giver has, which is, you know, <laughs> has to um, make sure that this transition is successful. Um, this is the next to final slide. I have like a series of conclusion slides that <laughs> hopefully it builds. Okay, so this is one thing that's really important. It's not so much about transition, but there is a new generation every five years. The kids who are in high school today weren't there five years ago. So unless we give messages with renewed energy, new things, new strength, it's going to not, not make a difference. Those kids never saw it. Sustain and refresh sex education, social marketing efforts, um, and remember that HIV is missing in action in most young people's consciousness. Um, there is not a person on the planet who doesn't know what Coca-Cola is, where to buy it, what it tastes like. Coca-Cola spends millions and millions of dollars every year to maintain its market share, you know, to make sure people know about it, et cetera. Um, we don't do anything close to that for an epidemic that is much harder than which cola brand you like. So we need to re-engage this fight. And as we are threatened with declining uh, funding, we need to like sort of get on our horse and, and move it because we're not going to have this forever. Thank God, you know, Ryan White is here. And thank God, from my point of view, that D isn't merged into C. But having said that, we still have work to do, and, and the work needs to change, and we need to change. Um, HIV is no longer feared. It's viewed as, we view it as treatable, and it's also therefore invisible. So like when it comes to something like PrEP, what is the thinking of today's youth about preventing HIV in an era in which if you get HIV, you know, it's not terrible? So we're trying to do some deep dive work to understand the motivators of today's youth. Um, you see a lot in teenagers this duality. Oh, you know, if I'm gay, I'll definitely get HIV. Look at what the CDC said, one in two black men, versus invulnerability. Oh, I'll never get it. That's, you know, that sort of Superman myth that many young people have. Um, fear of disclosure continues to be huge, whether it's HIV, that you're having sex, what your sexual orientation is, what your gender is. Uh, these still remain huge issues, and we're not over it, you know, not even close. Uh, confidentiality and consent remains hard to implement in practices. Like if you're in an ED and they bring the child in for a sprained ankle, how do you get the mother out of the room to offer the HIV test to the young person. You know, I have an answer, but, you know, uh, you know, it's not easy. And vulnerable youth in general are not well served by multiple systems that we have. Okay, so these are some of the people. Alicia Liggett is our current medical director. Rebecca's our ATC coordinator. Steven's our communications person. Um, Adicellis is back at Harlem Hospital having worked with us. Angela Cancel, social worker, Pat Harry Jackson, long-term uh, tester, counselor extraordinaire, Mama Pat, 
And she's the person who taught me that you don't just have to be young to work with young people. Young people want to be liked and respected by anyone, and she's like Grandma Pat. And the kids love having someone like that. And then this website, HIVCareForYouth.org. Um, so as I mentioned, um, there are Anna Garcia and Larry Friedman did this uh, transition chapter, which has a lot of this information. There's other really nice information on this website. And I remain optimistic. We can do it. And uh, part of this is sponsored by our Northeast Caribbean AETC, uh, HRSA, Title, Title E. Yes. And um, EF, sorry, E is dental. No, I still don't have it right. There's no E. Okay, no E. Forget it, there's no E. Okay, so now I get to be giddy. And we have 15 minutes, so I want to say two things. One is if you want to leave, I won't be insulted. This is a good time to go. The second is that in the final 10, 15 minutes, what I'd love to do is all those hands that I refuse to answer to and bringing up cases and then having you guys share your experiences thoughts, and any more questions. So the departure people. Okay. Oh, yay. <laughs> okay. So you're, she's going to start because she's been waiting no, the I longest. I just wanted to point out that um, one of the frustrations in transitioning our uh, adolescents to adult specialists you know, the pediatric cardiologist to an adult cardiologist, endocrinology, renal. So uh, that's one of our biggest frustrations, not the ID uh, transitioning. So we try to transition them first to adult specialists and then transition them from our clinic to adult ID. That's interesting. Yeah. So one of the nice things about adult people is uh, they often know more than us pediatricians about multi-system disease. So m you might not need as many specialists, or you might, you know, if the uh, adult person is only ID and that's all they want to do. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I would not have said go that way, but I think that could be very smart because, you know, you're still the coordinator of care and they're starting to get their care elsewhere and you're assuming that wraparound role. Yeah, I mean, one example is I have um, uh, two patients, um, siblings, and uh, both of them, well, one of them had cardiomyopathy from ZDV early on, and so he's followed by pediatric cardiology. And both of them developed diabetes, both of them developed hypertension, and so what would you do? I mean, I. As an adult provider also, I follow their diabetes. That's not a big problem, but I'm not going to follow them, you know, um, yeah, cardiology. cardiology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it, you know, depends. And you're based where again? At Jacksonville, okay. University of Florida, yeah. Rainbow Center. Yeah. Does anyone else want to comment on this, you know, the multi-system disease kids and... Coordinating with subspecialists? Yeah. Really difficult in getting their specialists. So what is difficult is having 
So the impatience of, you know, our kids with this is kind of remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it just ends up being an ongoing connection even when they go because what ends up happening, the specialist will then call and say, hey, your patient didn't show. Yeah. And then you going through the whole, you know, process. And the other challenge with um, the transition is recognizing the dynamics that the patient is coming out of from in their community, neighborhoods. One of my patients have a lot of trauma. They've seen, you know, people get killed and they have to deal with a lot of those issues. The grandparents who says, I can't deal with you anymore, and they're being shuffled around to different family members. I've, you know, and then try, so many times just making those appointments, it's not just about them not making it, it's that they were shuffled somewhere else that they couldn't even get there. And, you know, trying to then explain that to the adult, you know, you know care provider is really difficult because it's not something that they even conjure or think about. I found that with our specialist, it's almost a three strikes in your out model, like if you don't show up for your whatever. Um, and, you know, that's very hard because, you know, there's no, there's very few kids except those with cancer, and that's usually finite. Maybe the kids, you know, who are on dialysis, who have to go a few times a week, who have this much health burden. But, you know, HIV is every system, and it comes out of, you know, huge trauma and stress. Uh, so I agree with you. It's, and I think that's what draws many of us to do this work is we want to solve or be engaged in difficult problems. But the other thing I think we've all learned, except for the people who are brand new, there was someone who was just starting, um, thank you, is, you know, being able to have a boundary. Like, as much as you want to do everything for your patient and you don't want to lose any of them or have a failure, and it's not because you don't want it on your record, it's because your heart makes you want to do it. Ultimately, you know, it's the patient's life. And, you know, we can't get so over-invested that we, you know, take these defeats in, in some kind of hugely personal way. So I just yeah. wanted to bring up something that we haven't talked about yet, and that's pregnancy and, and perinatally infected or even in kids who get infected um, uh, behaviorally. And the difficulty taking care of them during pregnancy when you can't fool around. You have to get them virally suppressed, and if anybody has any thing that works really well with that population. <laughs> so I run the Maternal Child HIV program in Las Vegas, and we don't run it as a clinic. So I, it's called the Nevada Care Program, and we work very closely with multiple providers. And I, I do pediatrics. But in order to keep my women virally suppressed, as soon as I find out, either the health district will call me or some of the adult clinics will call me and be like, I have a pregnant woman, Dina, you have to, you know, talk to her. Oh, okay, okay. So, so yeah. one thing is, I, do, do you want to, oh, so, so the only thing I've tried is um, we had a superhero conference. So I had some of my pregnant, so my women who, who weren't perinatally infected or who were perinatally infected who were pregnant actually be superheroes yes. to, the, to the kids 
So we had a conference like that, and they, they were actually engaged with each other. They could ask questions about, well, when I am ready to be, yeah, so when I'm ready to be HIV positive or uh, ready to be pregnant, how can I prevent it to the baby, and when should I engage in sex, should I not? So that actually worked well because it was a superhero mentor um, yeah. thing. So. I think that's nice. And the other thing, just to give you some reassurance, it might seem like, oh, this is overwhelming or how could this possibly work or be successful. Yeah, no, it's a challenge. But when we're looking at, you know, the very few kids who were born, babies who were born HIV positive, no one has said that the majority of this is coming from perinatally infected new mothers. It just hasn't emerged as a risk factor, and I think this will be a case where we'll see a couple of, you know, anecdotal stories that'll break our heart, but I haven't yet heard it emerging as a, you know, chunky problem like that. You do? Perinatal, not who are pregnant, who have transmitted? No, I understand that, but have they passed it on to their babies? Yeah, so that's what I'm, I mean, I don't find it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying is it's happening. It's a total reality that these girls, like any girls, want to have babies. Yeah. But I haven't heard emerging that transmission by um, perinatally infected girls is emerging. Yeah. So that's all I'm saying is let's. Yes, yes, yes. So at, at the University of Miami, we started a centering program. And so what we're doing is we're having a group of ladies stay together, and they're coming in for testing at the same time in OB. And um, so hopefully we'll have some good reports from that in the future. And um, for centering, it's a centering model. Well, it's where you have a group of ladies who are pregnant, and you invite them to come into the same public area. They do all of their testing together. They meet as a group, and um, they just kind of meld, mesh with each other. And they stay through the whole pregnancy until delivery. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping that we'll have some really good results from that because we're having the same issue. And then so with um, not depending so much on individual right. clinical contact, but the, also the power right. of peers. Right. And they're throughout. literally in the yes. same room doing the same everything at the same time. Weighing and we have exams. to get consent yeah. for them to, you know, be able to meet with the others. Right. Right. And for, yeah, right. And really quickly, because yeah, Anna, Gar Anna Garcia says I'm hungry. <laughs> Please <laughs> um, tell her, don't tell I her surely I will. put her name on. I, I sure okay, don't, don't I worry. Forgot to correct okay. <laughs> and what we're doing is uh, two other things. We have, we hired a patient navigator who is not a nurse or a social worker, whom we have trained to take records with the patient over to the adult physician. We'll make the appointment, travel with them to the appointment, stay with them for the appointment, be in the waiting room with, if that physician has a question that the patient can answer. Does and, anyone else develop a yeah. patient history for referral with the young person? I have. Yeah, Nursing-wise, I, I have. that's a really yes. nice yes. moment. I make them reviews. a packet. I'm not finished with you. We're yeah. coming back. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think, you know, as you were saying, very specific, concrete things. I think that's a really nice tool. It, it clues the patient into what happened. 
it gets you, you know, smart, what you've accomplished, what you haven't yet accomplished. So, okay. And, and, and You're the, so the fruitful the that I have to keep yes. interrupting and you <laughs> all your topics. And the last thing is we actually transition the young OB patients back to us. Oh, yes, we do, because it really wasn't working with them staying in a, another service after we said, we, if they're 13, 14, once they deliver, six weeks after the, they have their, yeah, we bring them right back to our clinic and they stay with us till they're 24. If they have two or three more kids, we send them to OB and we bring them right back. We do the same thing, and it was hard for us to give up managing them while they were pregnant, but it just was too much. So... Okay. All right. So let's. I don't want to touch adolescents with HIV at all. In the back, starting with the pink Play shirt, the guy in the last row over on this side. They won't allow us to take care of pregnant patients. Okay. Yeah. Hi. I just wanted to reinforce the work with peer, the peer models. In, in my program with the youth, they get a peer mentor who's someone who has successfully transitioned, is now part of the adult clinic, and is usually a couple years older because of the, the age gap and everything, but they help the young, the young person really transition in a, in a proper way, and it's coming from the peer. So it's reinforcing everything that the clinician is saying, and then the, the positive peer brings them through and really shares their experience. So it was like what Dr. Futterman was saying, when you hear something from your friend, it's, it really goes a long way in addition to reinforcing what the clinician is saying. Um, I wanted to add some insight into what we've done at um, Columbia Presbyterian for the perinatally pregnant women that are really, really scaring the OBs. Um, <laughs> we, we've actually... Put, one of them uh, checked herself into a skilled nursing facility because she was not um, confident in her ability to take her meds on her own. Um, and then another young woman, there were uh, significant conversations over a period of time as she was nearing her uh, third trimester about actually admitting her inpatient for uh, DOT. So fortunately, both of them had negative kids. <laughs> I just want to second his thought that uh, the peer group, our program, since it's housing, we provide housing for them. So all of them live in one same housing. Everybody has her own place, but still, same housing. So we arrange for them to go for their care, everything. If you have specialist care, everything, you have to go. And they take you and bring you. And they adjust more when they come to clinic. Like they come to me as uh, a provider, they attach to me more because they feel like they can trust you. They have to trust somebody, and it's you, the provider. So when they go to their special appointments, they will call you and let you know. Oh, the doctor said this. Should I do it? This, this, that. So that's very important because they have, they are all at one place and they are able to talk to each other and also coordinate care. I think, you know, we're all learning from each other how much we have such different resources 
and ability to do this. So the idea of a housing place where you have the trusted provider, you know, is so exciting. But, you know, and it works and it helps and it takes things to the next level. But then we also have to look at, you know, how do you make do with what you have? Yes. So I have a problem. <laughs> I have a 21-year-old transferred care um, about seven months ago. Looked back through his peace history and there was very strong question of Munchausen's. Mom's positive, not in care. Um, the patient has never had an undetectable viral load. And it seems like they're bringing that dynamic to the adult clinic, and I really don't know how to combat that. Is the 21-year-old still at home? Yes. Fran, could you help us with this? And again, just learned of his diagnosis about a year ago. Do you have anything to say on this? She's the psychiatrist, yeah. I know, if I know you, come on, I'm going to call you out. <laughs> the, so the, the 21-year-old is still at home and, has a, and is positive and doesn't take... He was just told, do you think he was positive all his life? He's been, he was positive okay. all his life, but he's told he had cancer. Uh-huh. Again, a strong... You know, I, I have only one. I have only one thing to say about this because okay. it's so complicated. Yeah, yes. But generally, <laughs> generally speaking, you know, there's often a temptation to try to achieve a separation when you see something pathological going on. But that's often a. Um, a uh, something that's not going to work. You'll never, you're not going to succeed at it. We do this a lot in psychiatry when, you know, we have somebody with a severe mental illness, you know, living with a parent who is only exacerbating it. But when we try those separations, they often don't work. And we do placements, the person is right back. So after seeing that, I realized that as, as crazy maybe as mom is, you really need to work with the dyad and make gradual progress in the dyadic relationship because separation hardly ever succeeds. So that's my only thought about it. Of course, it's very different, but you know, and maybe what you do then is you get each in their own individual treatment so that you see them together where you're coordinating what goes on. Like I'll do that when I yeah. do a, treat a couple. I'll see the couple together, but then they each need to see an individual therapist to talk about the things that are destructive to discuss as a couple. So that's how I would see it. I know that's a lot of care, but each of them, I know she's not engaged in medical care, but nonetheless, she probably could be engaged as a, as a collaborator for her son's care. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. So now you see why I brought Fran back. She's <laughs> so wise and... Uh, you know, straightforward. Thank you, Fran. Okay. Uh, and do we want to talk more about this case a little more now that Fran's gone? We'll talk behind our back. <laughs> I know. Or do you feel like that was enough? I mean, that was helpful. I, I, like, there are providers who want to do facts. Yes. They want to solve When you say Munchausen's, because I don't know that everyone's familiar, are you saying she gave it to him, or she, she um, 
or she did not help him get over it. Yeah. Oh, right. So I just wanted to sort of clarify that, you know, what are you um, seeing here? And yeah, I mean, I think we all have these incredibly difficult cases. My feeling is let's get it right for the big chunk, you know, and make sure our policies are there, make sure our policies don't get, you know, sort of skewed to the big complications, and then we'll deal with the complications. I'm like very pragmatic in that way, because you always will have a stumper, like we call them in Dianu cases. It would have been enough if it was only this, Dianu. It would, but no, it was also this, Dianu. And it just like the list goes on and on and whatever. Okay, yes. When listening, this is all very helpful, though it stirs up frustrations. Yes. That being said, um, for the five perinatally acquired crux issue is the dynamic around, oh my God, they got so sick because they're so non-adherent. And you, you spoke to the issue of the medication as the independent yeah. battleground and that if you, you got some tricks because they get so damn sick and it's anywhere from that now 16, 17-year-old to the 24-year-old. Yeah. Some thoughts? of my, yeah, tricks <laughs> are trying to real, because no, I mean, listening is like one of the gifts we can give. Very rarely do we listen. We just tell people, you got to do this, you got to do that, you're going to die if you don't. Yeah, da, da, da. So listen, what was your problem? Why don't you want to do it? You know, what do you know about this? What's why is it okay for you to just give up like this? You know, so at, without asking a million questions, try and get them talking about what it is. Um, one kid, it didn't work that well, but it was kind of interesting to do, was a ritual of like burning all the old medicine bottles. You know, let's start over. Okay, that was then, now it's your choice. That was their choice, you know, or burying the old bottles, you know. I think rituals are incredibly important. And, you know, if you have a kid who's in a culture where rituals are practiced of coming of age, you know, what are some of those that could work? I think peers is incredibly important as a way. But basically, the goal is, you know, which we all know, is to transfer ownership of this from everyone else to the young person. And, you know, what... You can, by listening to what they say is important to them, it could be, I want to get to my prom. You know, okay, well, that's in a year. You know, you got to do this, 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 and you want to look beautiful. You know, or, you know, I want to be the first gay person at my prom. You know, so you just, I think it's, what did they have to live for and to do it? That's what I find um, is, is a trick. Yeah. Right, right. Michelle, do you want to? I kind of want everybody to know. Okay. And our, our work, again, 
are able to, oh yeah, I forgot about them, sorry. And our kids are able to communicate with one another. They're able to communicate with us. They actually ask me questions. Then I get back to them whenever I feel like it. Um, and they talk to you and say things that they wouldn't when you're face to face. And they also um, form relationships with other people um, through the clinic Facebook or even on their own. I, I don't even get into, Rita does the social media for our, for our clinic and she does a great job. And I just don't want people to forget the power Sorry. of that and it works so well when you communicate with them on their level and you, yeah. the things that you're talking I tell you, Facebook or however you communicate, they might yeah. tell you that way and not really talk with you yeah. face to face. So I just want everybody to kind of think about that because it's yeah. incredibly important. Great. Um, I just also want everyone to know that Michelle Ogle is on the Presidential Advisory Committee for HIV AIDS and she is fierce in representing the issues of adolescents and young okay. people. So we're very lucky and I think, you know, the more I, I we see, meet each other, you know, the Hopkins program is amazing, you know, and you know, what has pioneered work around pregnancy and all issues for many decades. So, you know, the conference is such a richness of each of us being experts in our field. So there's not, I'm up here, but, you know, someone else will be the next time. Uh, you had something back there? Did you still? Our model, um, I'm, I work at uh, UCSF at um, both the Family Health Center HIV clinic as well as Hive Clinic, which used to be called Bay Area Perinatal AIDS Center. Um, and our model is family medicine based. So um, I'm the clinician that will see the patient throughout her prenatal visits, um, but then afterwards or, or before, um, if during preconception or postpartum, they'll come back to our family health center with the baby um, all the visits are co-located so that, you know, the postpartum period is such a hard time when a lot of moms, whether they're perinatally infected, whether, I mean, whether they have a chronic illness at all is just a, such a hard time. So that's one way we kind of keep continuity with the provider um, so that they don't feel like going somewhere where they don't know the, um, the new provider. Um, if, if they're a teen going into a pregnancy, um, they kind of keep the same one. And we have the same social worker who works both at the Family HIV Clinic and at um, Hive Clinic. So it's just one way that we kind of feel like at least you can have continuity um, and the same person knows you um, and, and they, they trust you a little more. That's great. I mean, I've re really become a fan of family medicine through this transition issue. Yeah. Um, I'm from the Children's out in Aurora, Colorado, and I had a couple questions for the group. One is, um, you know, Donna, you mentioned in your talk the, the sort of the struggle with the pediatric model, which is just wanting to, like, nurture and not let go and that kind of thing. And um, what we're, is anybody, like, we're finding that there's a lot of variation between providers. So some are like, yes, absolutely, it's time to go. And others are like, no, you know, um, wanting to do that, hang on. And what I'm finding among the staff, my staff is that they want a policy. They want us to set, like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I was curious from the group if anybody has had experience with negotiating that with different providers and styles in their clinic. That was one question. Second one is, and it's somewhat of an overlap, you also in your touched on the, the idea that the kids that are perinatally infected get to a point where they're just like, 
cool, I can make my own decisions, well then I'm stopping. I'm not doing this anymore because they're tired. And that often tends to overlap around the time when you're starting to have these ideas about transition. And that for us is, um, then it's like, oh, we can't do it now. Got to get them tuned up. We have them all, need to have them all wrapped up with a bow. And I'm curious about the group's experience with that or any insights. Transitional period. We have a transition program. We have our the the uh, practitioners that practice in the adolescent clinic also practice in the adult clinic. So there's an so they they actually in the transition of the of the patient that they assume the care in the adult program. Nice. Um, it is nice, but I'm gonna and we have a lot of resources. We have up here. We have they have case. Case management. We have uh, we have everything. We still for outcomes, their viral loads are less. And and actually the reason I, I'm sorry she left. The reason why I mean and from an adult, as a practice manager for adults, the reason why you want to push it to 26, 27, 28, to go into that program because you feel that there are more resources there and maybe you know there's an we have young. Um, men coming in 27, 28, chronologically, you know, 27, 28, behaviorally, you know, they're still very young and they, I think they would really benefit from that. But I'm, st we're still looking for the golden yeah. nugget. I it's don't like, think I there can't, is one. You know, I mean, the fact that from under-resourced to the most compelling, charismatic providers who everybody in the planet loves, I mean, it's the teenager. It's, you know, let's, it's there. It's, it's the teenage brain. I mean, literally, the brain is maturing, you know, and the frontal lobe, which has decision making and, you know, and uh, whatever capacity to stop you from just acting out, literally isn't developed. Um, there, there's two horrible reasons why pediatricians don't want to transition. One is they need the numbers in their program yep. and mm -hmm. you know it's horrible to say there's no longer a pipeline in right. so you know we have to acknowledge that and um, and the other horrible reason why you don't want to let them out is because they finally get successful when they're 25 and right. you know wouldn't that be nice if we could like be part of that success, that. have it be in our outcomes and bottom line. No, we have to get rid of them or pass them on, you know, when they're still a mess. And so I think it does have to be individualized. Um, you know, it's very easy to get buy-in from your staff when they're very troubled patients. Oh, yeah. Okay, they could transition now. Um, you know, it's, it's just weird because we're like the only people who do this, who get rid of our patients, who graduate them, who get them out. And um, it's just, it's a strange thing. So absolutely, different providers have different things. Uh, those of us who've sent our kids off to college, you know, have different things. We're elated that they're launched and that they don't come back and live with us, or we want them to come back and live with us. You know, it's, I think it's very, it's not a professional issue. I think there's a lot of personal, emotional things. And you know, you have some people in your clinic who are all giving, all sacrificing. They're not gonna let anybody go. It's very hard to be 
someone who helps someone grow up and scaffolds for them their adulthood. That's like highly advanced and not that many of us are. And, you know, if you can think about it, talk about it, understand it, maybe you can help the providers. I think uh, what Steve was talking about before about having rules in your practice, he's, he's not here, I'm just, I can make up anything about the guy. Um, you know, is you can, um, you know, the rules and what you're willing to do with the rules. Like, we've had expanded them. I got my pediatric chairwoman to say, yes, it's okay to go up to 24. We first went up to 24 with the positives. Now we can go up to 24 with the high-risk negatives and the transgender kids. And, you know, and the other thing I just want to tell all of us is we've learned a lot of things from doing this work about comprehensive care, great teams for some of the most vulnerable kids. HIV will one day be over, you know, and let's figure out what else we can do. I mean, for us, it's serving vulnerable kids. We're expanding our care into HIV, po uh, into LGBT kids who aren't positive in the Bronx, and there's a lot of them, and just like with HIV, we're not going to be their only provider. So try not to be competitive, you know, with your fellow clinics, you know, which is hard in this numbers thing. And, you know, there's more than enough work for everyone. You know, that's, everyone is telling us that there are not enough providers out there to take care of all the new people who have health insurance. So don't think there's not going to be work. Just, you know, keep figuring out how you can bring the lessons forward. So thank you. <laughs>